We've got a funny Fed president and more intrigue with Bitcoin. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Monday. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. Mm-hmm. We've got a great show today, David. But before we start, the Lego movie. Who knew? Have you seen this yet? Not yet. Have you? Are you going to see it? Redbox. Red, Red box. box for Are me. Are you not a Netflix subscriber? Is it on Netflix? I will be. You can. You will be able to order it through Netflix. True. It'll be on Redbox first before Netflix, though. And you're, you're willing to pay that dollar, that whole dollar. <laughs> I'll get a promo code. Get it, it for free. Isn't uh, Blu-ray even more expensive? Blu-ray? At Redbox? I don't get Blu-ray. Do you don't have a Blu-ray? I'm not as rich as you. I can't <laughs> have a Blu-ray player. <laughs> what is this, the 1990s? I don't All right, let's VHS. get the first headline here. Oh, that's horrible. Uh, this is from the New York Times. As crisis loomed, Yellen made wry and forceful calls for action. David, this is referring to the fact that last week the Federal Reserve released transcripts, not to be confused with minutes, transcripts from the meetings of the Federal Reserve in 2008. From the NSA. From, yeah, from directly from the NSA. Tapping the, the phones. The sp- spying in on yeah. the... Have you? Did you spend your weekend? Let's start with that. Did you spend your weekend reading these transcripts? I did not. You did not. I read some headlines, but it sounds like you did. I I, I read some of them. I read I read a little bit. Look, here's here's the uh, an interesting question. Here is looking back. Is it possible to avoid bias when it comes to Janet Yellen? Because now we know she's the chairwoman of the Federal Reserve. And when you look back at what she was saying, and most of the coverage that I've seen says that she comes out as particularly prescient, not. Exact. I mean, her her uh, estimates for unemployment, for example, in in early two thousand eight, were way off the mark, as as were everybody else's. But she was seeing a recession before it seemed a lot of the other Fed presidents uh, were seeing it. it. But is it possible to look back without without some I don't, sort of bias? I don't think so. Not just yelling. I, the whole process. It's impossible to look at this without. Bias. Yeah, that's, that's actually. I, I saw one one opening sentence or one headline of an article that was that called the Fed ignorant, because it's so easy to look back and see what happened and what they're saying in January of two thousand eight. Oh, they didn't call it. Right. They didn't call the the catastrophe that was going to happen in the financial markets. Well, it's easy to say that now that we know what happened. So, the whole thing it's it's interesting to read knowing what happened, but I don't blame them for not seeing this exactly. And even even though Yellen did kind of, she was up there saying. Hey guys, this could get really bad. The stage is set here. She, for this she said it really was in, in January. She was saying that we were probably already in a recession. Right. So she, not many other people were saying that, no. and she was right about this one. I'm not going to give her too much credit just because she was right about this. Doesn't mean she's going to write about every. Gonna be right it was about a every coin crisis. flip, right? It could yeah. have been a coin flip. Exactly. The people who were saying it's not a big deal. A couple of things change a little bit differently. Some companies don't fail. Maybe maybe they're think, right. I, I don't think that ignorant bias, now now I'm just thinking back to what you said, that ignorant bias, I don't think that's particularly fair, and I don't know how useful that is either, because the other thing we could look back on in terms of bias is that we had this financial meltdown, not dissimilar to the Great Depression in the way the housing market melted down, the stock market melted down, we had all this unemployment, and yet here we are today, the world's still going. It is. The U.S. economy is still taking along, so we could just as easily look back with the bias of Hey, we got to the other side of this pretty well. The Fed didn't seem to know what was happening at the time, but their policies maybe helped us get through. Mm-hmm. That's a different kind of bias. It's interesting that not as many people are picking up on that side of it. Yeah, it's second, interesting. Second headline. Second headline. A little more interesting here with this one. <laughs> Mount Gox CEO resigns from Bitcoin Foundation. We've seen the back and forth between Mount Gox 
and the Bitcoin Foundation, Mt. Gox said, hey, this isn't our problem. This is a Bitcoin problem. And the Bitcoin Foundation says, this is a Mt. Gox problem. You guys don't know what you're talking about. He said, she said kind of thing. So now Mt. Gox CEO leaving the foundation. Now, we talked about our opportunity on Friday. Charter member of the Bitcoin Foundation, too. We talked about the opportunity on Friday, potential opportunity, arbitrage here. Has it been playing out? I know you've been watching it closely. What are we seeing at Mount Gox? Well, so far at Mount Gox, when when we were talking about this last week, the price of Bitcoin on Mount Gox was about $100 per Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It's up to $200 per Bitcoin now. You doubled your money. two-bagger. In just a few days. (laughs) Over at Coinbase, the price is, I think, a little over $570. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is... I'm saying this mostly with tongue-in-cheek, but, but, I mean, at this, there is an opportunity here. If Mt. Gox figures out their problems and you can start transferring Bitcoin outside of the Mt. Gox universe mm-hmm. again, that's a legitimate arbitrage right there because you can buy the, the Bitcoin not, not as cheap as you could uh, late last week, right. but still less than half the price of I, – I don't know that it's nearly as attractive, though, okay. now, now that you've got $200, $200 per Bitcoin versus 570 The spread is narrowing. <laughs> You're killing me. You're killing me. One other, one other interesting thing about Mt. Gox. I should have done more research on this up front when, you know, w- way back when we were first really starting to cover Bitcoin in a meaningful way. Mt. Gox, as I think you pointed out prior, stands for Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, originally set up as a trading exchange for the, 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 tr- the Magic the Gathering right. trading cards. Not a real mountain. I know that. I'm Not a real mountain over there. <laughs> I think that's something you need to know if you're about to, to hook up your bank account to this exchange. One more thing on Bitcoin. I read an interesting article over the weekend from Coindesk, and the title was How Cash Would Be Seen by the Media If Invented Today. And it was kind of a satire. If someone was to come to the market and say, hey, we're starting this new program. You carry around paper. There's no way of telling if it's, if it's real or fake. And it's only in certain denominations, so you have to get change for it, and there's multiple things. So looking at it that way, Bitcoin does have some attractive properties. But but there's a small issue of the full faith and credit of the United States government, right? Right, but even outside of the U.S. saying each country is going to have their own piece of paper and you can't use it across lines, it does sound a little ridiculous. I thought it was was an interesting article. I I like the fact that the the cash is backed by the government, regardless of what the government does with it. Third, Third and final headline... We're going over to the Wall Street Journal. HSBC full-year results fall short of expectations. HSBC, like many other banks, has been sort of a rocky road out of the financial crisis. Better results this year, just over 9% total return on equity. Not great, but not mm-hmm. terrible, but missed uh, analyst expectations. We don't talk much about H- HSBC. We don't, we don't talk a whole lot about the U.K. banks in general. Would you, would you buy HSBC? Under what, under what circumstances? I don't know if I would. You mentioned it as a, as a U.K. bank. Yes, that's where it's headquartered. Well, yeah. But this thing is everywhere, and we were talking about this before the show, and you said they're in their mission statement, they say we want to go where the growth is, mm-hmm. right? That's in their mission statement. That doesn't make me feel great. That's, they're basically saying we want to chase growth to wherever it is. Kind of whatever happens, we're going to go there. Mm-hmm. I don't love that strategy. Yes, they can maybe manage the risk in the individual areas, but... I don't know. This isn't a business model that gets me excited. How does this stack up to Citigroup? Well, that's what I was about to ask. Citigroup or HSBC, because we're talking about two very similar businesses from the perspective that, like like you just pointed out, HSBC we think of, we can think of as a UK-based bank. Mm-hmm. But when it breaks down its operations, it's really 
there's, there's a group of European operations, mm-hmm. and that's like a quarter. I think it's, it's somewhere in a quarter, like a quarter of HSBC's total revenue. And then all of the rest of it is coming from everywhere else. Hong Kong, huge exposure to Hong Kong, huge exposure to the rest of China, exposure to North America, not as much as, as Asia, uh, and then Latin America as well. So you're literally talking about a global bank, which is very similar to Citigroup. Right. In terms of HSBC versus Citigroup, I think there's somewhat of a question of the devil you know versus the devil you don't, or just another way to put it would be familiarity. Right. We're obviously a lot more familiar. We're a lot more exposed in terms of cognitive biases, mere exposure effect. We see Citigroup all the time. We do see HSBC a decent amount, but not as much as Citigroup. The other thing is, is that I feel like I understand the strategy at Citigroup better than I do HSBC. I feel like Citigroup has a more cogent story behind it. I, I don't know how much you want to take away from that, but in terms of how it's approaching, not just that it's in emerging markets, but how it's approaching emerging markets, thinking about the urbanization part of it, thinking about the digitization part of it. Um, Maybe that's my problem. Maybe I haven't looked at HSBC enough to find that strategy, but the question is... But if you, but if you if have to look, if you have to look, look so look, hard, yeah. maybe, it's, maybe it's not so apparent. Maybe but. it's just a bank. And, and there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of banks out there that are they're banks. Right. And why, why are you going to want to invest for the long term in, a, in any organization that isn't really differentiating itself? Yeah. It can put itself in the way of the growth, as you said. Say, we're, we're going to go be where the growth is, and that may be sort sometimes of differentiating. It'll, sometimes it'll work out, sometimes it won't. But, yeah, for me, I'd go with Citigroup over HSBC. All right, let's move on. Focus for the day. We got a little treat this morning. This was over at, I don't want to get this wrong, it was Fortune? Yeah. Fortune. Okay, over at Fortune. Warren Buffett took the unusual move of doing an early publish of the narrative portion of the Berkshire Hathaway annual letter. Which is due out, I think, next week, right? I would, I would guess it's due pretty darn soon. Yeah. They don't, they don't say, they don't tell you. I think last year was March 1st, so... Okay. We'll put it so, that. Relatively soon, we'll get the entire shareholder letter, which of course will be worth a read. But in the meantime, we get the whole narrative portion of this. And it was an interesting read, mm-hmm. as it always is. I, I think one of my big takeaways from it was he's talking, once again, as he always does, about holding for the long term. It was framed around this, these two real estate investments that Buffett made and the idea that he didn't do any crazy amount of research or mm-hmm. you know, big presentation, big PowerPoint presentation to figure out the opportunity, he looked at it very simply in terms of, well, I think I can get a reasonable return right. from these real estate properties. One was a farm, the other was a, uh, I think like a, a retail property. A, a retail Here property. At NYU. In, yeah. So he said, I think I get a, a reasonable return over this over time from the productivity right. of the farm. So thinking about the, the land as a business, because mm-hmm. one's a farm, the other's a, re- a retail, leases to retail. And then just holding it over time and not, not worrying about how much he could resell that property for and, and more, being more concerned with the, with the fundamentals. Yeah, I mean, and, and he drew it back to common stocks. I mean, you could say, well, that's, that's real estate. You can get lease income off that. It's a productive asset. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're buying a business, you're buying it for its future earnings as well. So he's saying you have to be able to look out and find what is the earnings potential for this asset, whether it's a stock, a bond, whatever. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to find the, the, the true value of the earnings in the future there. Um, yeah, that was the big takeaway for me as well. But I was also surprised how little he talked about 
the market potentially being too pricey today. I didn't get that. I didn't get that feeling. I don't know if you did. I didn't get the feeling that he thought everything was a great buy today. Mm-hmm. But he didn't say anything about people being overly optimistic today. The stock market doesn't have a lot of room to run. He seemed pretty even keeled. Maybe the, maybe if I'm reading too much into it, it seemed like he thought the market was fairly valued as a whole. Well, the, the market isn't. The market isn't over optimistic today. I, I mean, that's that's the bottom line. The market isn't cheap today. But it's not over optimistic, mm-hmm. and and he talked about he kind of put put a uh, a new spin on Ben Graham's Mister Market uh, from the perspective of of the farm of of these right. retail properties that he said he could have a neighbor. He, he I guess he said one of the advantages of the real estate investments was that unlike the stock market, you don't have this ticker running all right. the time telling you what the current price is, what the last transaction was. He said it would be as if there was a neighbor at the farm every day... Standing there yelling. <laughs> yelling what price he would buy Buffett's farm for or what price he would sell him the farm that he owned. And, uh, and, and he, Buffett basically said, if the farmer next door offered to sell his farm for a very cheap price, he'd buy it. Mm-hmm. And if he offered a ridiculously high price for the farm that Buffett owned... He might consider selling it, or he said he might not. Right. Um, but I think when you when you take that and you apply it to the stock market, it's really not about Buffett's not about saying, well, we're at the upper end of historical valuation yeah. levels. That's not really his thing. Or we're, we're we're kind of approaching the lower. What he looks for are fair prices first of all. Fair. Well, actually, no. He looks for great businesses mm-hmm. first of all, and then he looks for fair prices on those uh, on those businesses, and then he's looking for historical aberrations on the downside when everything gets cheap. And then past all of that, when everything gets crazy expensive, like back in, looking back at Buffett's letters, I can't remember, I may be wrong, but I can't remember times when he was talking about over uh, too much exuberance in the market besides 99, 2000. I I can't think of another era when he was talking about that, so it's not really his thing. Yeah, that's fair. Another interesting thing, takeaway, was he was talking about Someone who's not going to put in the time to find good businesses and find attractive opportunities, which he's talked about that before. And he talked about what he's going to do with his money once he's gone and passed on. Talked about the shares going to charitable organizations, but also what's going to happen to the cash that he has when he passes away. Mm -hmm. He said the instructions to the trustee is to put 10% in bonds, 90% in low-cost S&P index fund. I thought that was very interesting. He's not even going to give it to a portfolio manager. It, it is the it, vanguard. It is interesting, except I, I think it's it makes sense when you think about the fact that Buffett's Buffett's thing is that he's he's putting this to charity, right? right? This is going to charity, so it's not about aggressively growing this money over time anymore. It's more about preserving preserving the value and getting some growth on it in order to help the charities that he, that he's helping out. Because you could go that direction and say, oh, well, Buffett doesn't trust anybody else. He doesn't think stock picking is a good idea. But then look at Berkshire Hathaway itself. He's hired Todd Combs and Ted Wexler mm-hmm. to come in there and basically pick stocks and do what he's doing. And he's giving them freedom. I mean, if we look at the extent to which DeVita has grown within the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio, and uh, it's Dish Network, right? Mm-hmm. Dish Network is the other big. That's another position that I'm pretty sure has come in through Wexler and Combs. He's given them autonomy to invest that portfolio, and they've taken some big, big, bold positions already. Right. So I don't, I, I wouldn't read too much into this to say, oh, well, Buffett doesn't think stock picking. Okay, good. that's fair. If anyone's looking it for, if anyone's looking for the article, the re, the way I found it was he tweeted it. He's a seldom tweeter, but he tweeted out 
this uh, this article today. So go to at Warren Buffett and you can find this letter. I bet that's got a few retweets today. I bet it does. All right, moving on to the mailbag. We have an email address. It's WTMI at fool.com. We love getting email. Please, please, please send us an email. We factually love email. This email from, from today, uh, this comes from Anthony. Anthony writes, do you think you can clarify what exactly companies are referring to when they speak about their level one, level two, and level three assets? Does this apply to all assets or a certain subset? And how would you go about categorizing an asset as level one, two, or three? David, I, I think you said you wanted to one-up me and show me how much you know about level one, two, and three it's assets. It's very exciting. <laughs> It's exciting stuff. So you'll, you'll see this in bank annual reports or 10Qs, 10Ks. And a level one asset is an asset that you can value openly in the market. So think of a stock, a, stock, a share of Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. You can easily get a quotable price for that asset and mark it on your books. Okay, the market says it's worth $50. It's worth $50 here. A level two asset is something that doesn't have an observable price on a, a very active exchange, but you can use kind of relative market observations to determine what that value is. And a level three asset is something that is not on an active exchange. It's not traded a lot. It's not very liquid. Think of a, a CDO squared. It's not going to transfer hands a lot. might be a little bit hard to, to value there. Getting a lot of retail trading on the so, CDO. So you're going so to have to have your own valuation to say, this is what I think this is worth based on all these assumptions. So this comes into play at banks because they mark some of their assets to market uh, so level one, if they hold any stocks, uh, any U.S. treasuries, those are level one assets. Level two assets, which are most of these assets that are marked to market, are level two. And the reason is a lot of these are agency mortgage-backed securities. Those are classified as level two assets. And level three, like I said, the CDO squared is a complicated stuff, but also mortgage servicing rights. So would you look at, well, if you look at Wells Fargo and all the other big four banks, you'll see that Wells Fargo has the most level three, a- level three assets, mm-hmm. you might say. That makes me feel kind of so. You don't unsure. have to. It's not just about knowing level one, level two, level three assets. It's, it's about, about what it is. What type of level? Right. So just because Wells Fargo has the most level three assets doesn't mean they're holding all these crazy CDOs and CLOs. They have a lot of mortgage servicing rights, which are categorized as level three. So it's not just looking at it. It's finding out what exactly it is and is it risky. Good explanation. I have nothing to add. All right. All right. We have a game for today. It is a little graded. Did I get it right that time? Making the grade. Making the grade. I say that every time. Every time. Uh, We've got three scenarios here for each one. I think it's a push. Oh, it is a push. I almost broke this. Sorry, Heather. Uh, For every one of these scenarios, we are going to draw a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful picture. First scenario we have here is the narrative of Warren Buffett's letter. Uh, David, what, what what did you think about the letter in comparison to previous Warren Buffett letters, all of which are really wonderful. I'm going to give it an A-. minus. I wasn't, I was thrilled, obviously, we just talked about it, very, very inspiring. But on the other hand, every time I read one of Buffett's letters, I feel a little bit bad about myself uh, because he brings in the part where if you're an unsophisticated investor, you should just buy low-cost index funds. And it makes you wonder, do I have... If Buffett's suggesting this, that he's one of maybe a handful of people, in his opinion, that can consistently do this, I don't know. It just makes me feel bad about myself. What, what, what about you? <laughs> it makes you feel bad yeah, about yourself. It's your... an A minus. A minus. I've got a. <laughs> this what is, is that? This is my fun drawing here. This is Buffett often talks. I've got a little guy here. This is the ocean, sun shining on him. Buffett often talks about. Well, there goes my paper. You only know who's swimming naked 
when the tide goes out. Yes. And I like to hear more about the background and the process that, that Buffett goes through, kind of our, our, own, our own view into the extent to which Buffett is swimming naked himself. Mm-hmm. So I, I, like, I like to get some more details on that. So these real estate investments I thought were pretty cool, uh, just lear- learning about that and learning about his process of going into it. And I'll actually go the opposite direction that you did in terms of feeling bad about... Uh, Yourself? Myself and stock... I rarely feel bad about myself, David. About investing in stocks. Because as he walks through these real estate investments, he's sort of talking about, well, I, I, I looked at the property. I thought about, well, what can this produce? I thought this could reasonably get me a 10% return that'll, go, that'll be really good in some years, less good in other years, and I'm comfortable with a 10% return right. on the property over time. So I'm going to go ahead and buy it. And so I think the, the question when it comes to, to investing in public companies is figure out what kind of return you're looking for. Figure out, and he mentions this in the letter, figure out if you can project out into the future a reasonable, uh, reasonably ha- what kind of, how this company is going to produce. Uh, and then if, it's gonna, if you think it's going to return well, buy it. And just sit on it. Yeah. I, the, the difference is, I think, is when somebody can't or won't take the time to figure out, can I project this out into the future, and here's what the, here's what the future holds. All right. You made me feel better about myself. I'm glad. That's, that's what I was hoping. Second scenario. Making the grade is now the Mount Gox arbitrage opportunity. David, go ahead and grade this arbitrage. You've been excited about this opportunity, but I, <laughs> I drew a picture of a guy, and his pants, his pockets are literally on fire, just burning the money inside of them. It's an interesting story. I am not putting my money on the Mount Gox arbitrage opportunity. I bet you are, though. What do you say? He's still working. <laughs> this is so horrible. This is so bad. <laughs> I tried to. I tried to draw a guy winking. Okay, it's supposed to be it. a guy winking. It looks like he got punched in the eye and his eyes swollen shut. Um, I, I think it's it, it's a fun, interesting thing to talk about. And there's legitimately potential money that it, it's potentially a legitimate arbitrage opportunity. Like I said, if Mount Gox clears up its problems and you can get the Bitcoin out of there, you can make real money on this. But there, there are a lot of hurdles to this. We talked about this last week. There's a 10 business day waiting period at Mt. Gox to get verified, which is what you need to do to get your bank account hooked up to it. So there's a long waiting period. You've got to send them a lot of information. You've got to hook up your bank account, all this kind of stuff. Right. So it's not an opportunity I'm jumping on. That's fair. I'll put it that way. Okay. Final you scenario. got a little nod, nod, and wink on the arbitrage. <laughs> Finally making the grade. Janet Yellen's jokes... Uh, we heard a lot in the uh, coverage of the Fed letters about how funny Janet Yellen has been. What do you think about her jokes? Dave? All right, I drew a, uh, a nerd scale here, and from zero goes from zero to Yellen jokes, and this is hitting the the full range of nerd scale here. This is some some pretty bad jokes. I'm going to be honest. I was not amused. What this, do you got? this isn't so much a picture Keep your- as a. Uh, as a recommendation, keep, keep your day job. Uh, big fan of Janet Yellen. I found her, I, I chuckled when I saw some of the jokes. You mentioned this one to me earlier, and I had read this on Friday. Uh, she said at one point something about, uh, it was a joke that was going around about balance sheets. Every, nothing on the left is right, and uh, nothing on the right is left. So it's kind Jokes of, about balance sheets. <laughs> jokes about, Just exciting. In, in the New York comedy scene. Jokes about balance sheets are not... I think she's performing uh, at the Comedy Cellar tonight. Not exactly killing it. So, uh, love the Yellen. 
the jokes can continue, but I think she should stay as Fed chairwoman as opposed to a comedian. I agree. Uh, finishing off today in the Twitter sphere, David, what is the first tweet? First tweet is from WSJ Moneybeat. Icon wages war against eBay, accusing directors of complete disregard for accountability. Now, Icon put a letter out to eBay shareholders. Of course he did. Saying this is the most blatant <laughs> disregard he's ever seen. That's, that's a little extreme. Is this the most blatant disregard for accountability you've ever seen? The eBay and PayPal spinoff Look, scenario. At, at, some, at some point, uh, Icon ha- wear, wears out his, uh, his hyperbole. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, oh, everything is a war. Everything is the most... And and this I think this is just this is icon being icon. There was a there was a Forbes article I think last week that kind of detailed PayPal's journey, where are they going, and Elon Musk jumped aboard saying that he thinks this is terrible for these two entities to be together, and we should note that I Elon Musk was one, of the, I, was I one of the founders true, of PayPal. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's wrong. I think PayPal should be spin off spun off. He agreed. He he likened it to Target being merged with uh, Visa. He was like, it doesn't make any sense for a payments company to be with an auction company. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. But, but as far as Icon's concerned, it's just Icon being Icon. I don't think it's, and I don't think it's the most blatant disregard for shareholders. I, I think that is way in the realm of hyperbole. All right, final tweet. Final tweet, we've got athlete motivation. This is at LV underscore sports. No matter how slow you go, you are still lapping everybody on the couch David, is this a nod to your 5K uh, running times? It is not. <laughs> I thought I'd give you some motivation on a Monday. That, that's my motivation? Yeah. No matter how slow I go, I'm still lapping everybody on the couch. Exactly. That is my 5K really wasn't that good. slow. I know. I'm just messing with you. I came like you. top 20. I, I know. I was just messing with you. You're, you're blazing speed out there on the right. 5K course. All right. That is the show for today. It is. You can find us on Twitter. Still find us on Twitter. At TMF Financials, you can find us on Facebook, Motley Fool Financial Services. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen, and we'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.